All right, can, uh, can we start by like, allowing me to get something off my chest? Is that, is that okay? Is this a safe place where I can get something off my chest? You native Coloradans are pansies when it comes to the heat. Like you really, like you, you know you are. Uh, yeah, you guys have been making fun of Corey and myself. We moved up here from Arizona because we were talking about how cold it was, but it's like 95 at out. And when it's 95 in Arizona, like you turn off your air conditioners. Like when it's 95 in Arizona, you, you start eat, drinking hot coffee again instead of iced coffee. Like that's what you do, right? <laughs> yeah, you guys know who you are. You know who you are. Hey, my name's Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. I do want to say welcome to every single one of you in this room. Thanks for being here. I want to say welcome to those that will be joining us online today. Thanks for joining the conversation. Uh, special shout out to our guests. Met several guests walking in this morning. Thanks for accepting an invitation. I don't know how you heard about Trace, but uh, if it was on the other end of an invitation, we're going to be talking about invitations today. I'm glad that you accepted that and that you're here and you're part of this gathering with us. Well, last week we kicked off this series called One, and the idea behind this series is that we're going to look at several different books of the Bible, specifically the first chapter out of several different books of the Bible, in hopes to give you a bigger and better understanding of kind of what's happening behind the pages. And our hope, like we've handpicked these books that we're going to be going through. Last week we looked at Genesis, today we're going to be looking at Matthew. And our hope is that this is going to give you a, a broader context in which you approach the Word of God because we do want you approaching the Word of God. But the other side of the coin of what we're hoping to accomplish in this series is this idea of the principle of one. Now if you weren't here last week, this principle of one is something that we believe will help you keep moving forward in things that matter the most. And we get it, you can't do everything. And Sometimes that's what keeps us from moving forward, right? It's like we see everything in front of us, and it, it feels so far removed from like where we are right now, where we ultimately want to get, that it kind of it, it makes us get stuck. And our, our hope is that you'll embrace this, this principle of one, understand that, yes, you can't do everything, but you can do one thing. And if you keep doing one thing in the areas that matter the most, you might, you might be surprised where you end up in life, how fulfilled your life becomes, and more important than that, how faith-filled life becomes for you. And so last week we looked at this particular principle of one that says, what's the one thing that you know? Now, this is not, not a leading question. It wasn't something that we were hoping to tell you to do, but something that you probably already felt you needed to be doing. What's the one thing that you already know that Jesus wants you to do that would bring value to your faith? And we had white pieces of paper up around the worship center, and many of you took up upon yourself. Over 60 people got up and went and wrote down, and I give you props for that, for being courageous to go and actually not just feel what you're supposed to do, but write down what you know that God already wants you to do. And so you'll see several different responses start to come up here on the screen of all the different things that people wrote down. Keep following through on those action steps. And I truly believe, I really do believe this. I'm not trying, trying to over-sensationalize this. I believe if you keep doing this in the areas that matter the most in your life, it could potentially lead you to a transformed life. If you keep doing the things that not only you know matter the most, but what God feels matters the most, or should be mattering the most in your life, you keep doing those things, and you might just end up living a faith-filled life unlike you ever thought was possible. So at the end of our time today, we're going to look at another principle of one. But before we get there, uh, I want to begin, and we are going to be in the book of Matthew today, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn there. You can turn them open, turn them on. And uh, just a quick side note, like when it comes to Bible reading, for what it's worth, I probably do 95% of my Bible reading digitally. 
And I do so by using this little app right here. If you don't have this app and you find yourself being a more digital person, I would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend that you get this app, this Bible app called YouVersion. Now, in this app, you're going to have several different translations of the Bible that you can look at. You also can join and be a part of reading plans, kind of like Facebook. You can befriend other people, and you can actually see the things that they're reading. Like, you could do this with a friend where it's like, hey, let's read the book of James together or something like that. It's a great little tool. If you ask me, it's one of the best tools that you can have with engaging the Word of God. And so that's just a side note. Now, today we are going to be looking at uh, the book of Matthew. And so whether you're looking at digitally or with an old school, you know, physical Bible here, uh, here's how I would like to begin. Matthew was a real person. Right? I mean, sometimes we forget that, right? Sometimes when we engage the Word of God, we forget that there are real people behind the pages of this book. There are real people that had their own fair share of pain and suffering. They made mistakes, big mistakes. They yelled at their kids. Sometimes they picked their nose. Honestly, right? These are real people behind the pages of this book. And guys, like you really need to hear our heart throughout this series. And you're going to hear us encourage you over and over and over again. We want you to engage with the Word of God. And our hope is that at some point in your life, you've already chosen to do that. That maybe there was an aha moment or a pivotal moment in your life where God got your attention, and on the other end of God getting your attention, you wanted to know more about this story. You wanted to know more about the story that, and we're going to talk about this today, the story that he wants to write you into if you'll put your faith and trust in his son, Jesus. Like, our hope is that this has already become a desire for yours, but if it hasn't, that it will become a desire in the future to want to engage with this book. And so today, we're not just going to look at the book of Matthew we're going to look at the person of Matthew. Because I truly believe that once you, be, once you begin to understand the person of Matthew, the book of Matthew is going to come to life in a whole new way for you. And so that's what we're going to do today. Here's what I think happened at some point <clears throat> in time. Matthew sat down, and he decided that he wanted to write down everything that he observed by spending three years with Jesus. But obviously, with the Gospel of Matthew that we have, there, it wasn't possible for him to sit down and write everything that he experienced with Jesus. And so you can imagine just the pondering, and we believe this was all inspired by the Holy Spirit, the pondering of what, you know, Matthew's thinking to himself, what do I need to let people know about the man who changed my life? Like, what is it, if I could let people know about his story and who he was and what he did, for, like, what is it that I would want them to know? And at that point, Matthew sits down with his trace embroidered pen, because everybody should have one, and he begins to write what he thinks people should know. Now, let me back up really quick. One of the best things that I think I could give you, as far as a piece of advice when it comes to engaging the Word of God, is by beginning with this statement right here. A verse can never mean what it never meant. Meaning, as we begin to look into the pages of this book, it's possible that we will read into God's Word something that wasn't intended to be the meaning of what you're reading. So let me back up and say it differently. The only meaning that any verse in this book can have is the intended meaning that the 40, whatever author, you know, there's 40 plus authors of the different books in this Bible, whatever the, the author intended for that particular verse to mean is the only meaning that it can have. The only meaning. 
And so often what we do is we kind of bring to the Word of God our own biases and philosophies and experiences, and we read into God's Word things that actually were never meant to be like translated that way. And not only can it potentially like cause you to walk away with a false translation, it can potentially cause you to walk away with a misrepresentation of who God is. And so how we approach this book is critical, understanding that we need to have the proper context to what we're reading, which is exactly what I want to give you today when it comes to the book of Matthew. So again, Matthew sits down and he's thinking, what is it that I want people to know about this man who changed my life? And he decides that he's going to begin with a genealogy. Now, he's the only gospel writer that begins his gospel. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begins his gospel with a genealogy. If you look in Luke, you'll find that Luke includes one as well. But Matthew is the only one who begins his gene- genealogy with, or I'm sorry, begins his gospel with a genealogy. Now, why would he do this? Now, this would have been common practice. Anytime you wanted to point to somebody, especially of a royal bloodline, And this is the Messiah, right? Matthew's trying to show people that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there was a very important prophecy that was given by Samuel. In 2 Samuel, we'll see the passage come up here in a minute, that said that when the Messiah comes, he has to come from the bloodline of David. So Matthew understands this, and he also understands that his primary audience is going to be Jewish, and genealogies were really important to Jewish people, especially when you're trying to point to someone that's really important. And so Matthew says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to write this genealogy. But when he does so, he does something that you never should do. You never should do when writing a genealogy. Hold that thought for a second. How many of you guys have ever uh, did one, done one of those mail-in DNA testings, like 23andMe, uh, what is it, Ancestry DNA. Just raise your hand. Anybody done that? Like, that's something I've been wanting to, wanting to do. I really kind of wanted to know what my background was when I was little, and here's what I mean by that. When I was little, I had two older brothers that were constantly telling me I was the mailman's kid. And uh, the reason that they did this is because my dad had jet black hair. Both of my older brothers had jet black hair, but I came out looking like this, right? <laughs> so, uh, they con- Now, to a kid that hadn't learned about the birds and the bees yet, I didn't really understand what that meant. So it's like, how am I related to the mailman? I don't get this. I don't understand what's going on. So it was very confusing for a young boy. And just really quick, uh, this is my beautiful mother. This last week was her birthday. So, Mom, happy birthday. Can we all just say happy birthday, Mom, if she's watching online today? Yeah, thank you for doing that and entertaining me. Here's what I, here's what I believe. I think that people really are interested in, in all, and this is a big selling item right now, this 23andMe, these ancestry DNA, these you know, DNA, DNA tests that you can send in. I think these are so important to people right now because people ultimately want to know, like there's an innate desire within them to want to know where they came from. I, th- I think people really do want to know where they came from. And when Matthew sits down to write his gospel, like I, I believe he really wants people to know where Jesus came from. Again, the fact that he's the Messiah was really important that people know that he came from the bloodline of David. And so when Matthew sits down to write his genealogy, he's like, man, I really need to show people where Jesus came from, but maybe just as important, he wants people to know who Jesus came for. And we get a clear picture of that in his genealogy because he does something that you're not supposed to do when you write a genealogy. Now, I'm only going to read the first six verses of the beginning of Matthew of this genealogy, but I would encourage you 
at some point this week to go back and read through. I mean, this is something people skip over all the time. It's like, man, I can't even announce, you know, pronounce all these names, so I'm just going to skip over this part when it's such a beautiful picture. And I think I'm going to help bring this to life for you in a, in a way today that maybe it hasn't been in the past. And if you read through the whole genealogy, it's 42 generations that are represented. It's incredible. But let me read the first six verses, and I'm going to show you what Matthew does that he never, never should have done. Here's, here's how he begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, for a Jewish person reading this, they're like doing the palm in their face at this point. It's like, Matthew, why are you mentioning Tamar? Like, not only do women typically not get mentioned in genealogies, but you're mentioning a woman that actually kind of shows a more scandalous past of Jesus' history here. Like, why would you mention Tamar? Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're, you don't understand the story, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute to get her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. And so if there was somebody that should have been left out of the story, it should have been Tamar. And again, Matthew didn't even need to include her because typically only the men would have been included. But he continues... Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother, was, oh no, I skipped too far, sorry, let me back up. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Matthew, like, what are you doing, bro? Like, this is not going to help your case. Like, you're pointing to women, and again, if you don't know your Bible history, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who protected the Jewish spies that were scouting out for the promised land. She's got a nickname in the Bible. It's called Rahab, the horrible time to bring this up with kids in the room. So, see what I did there? See what I did there? Like, Matthew, like, what are you doing, bro? Like, what are you doing? This is not helping your case at all. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth is an incredible story. This is where it gets a little bit different. Ruth is an incredible story. If you've never read the book of Ruth, I would encourage you to go back and read the book of Ruth. But one of the things you may not know about Ruth is she wasn't Jewish. And so now he's showing that there's an impure bloodline. And not only was Ruth not Jewish, Rahab was not Jewish either. But a little history on Ruth. Ruth came from the tribe of the Moabites. The Moabites were created out of incest. And so now we have this scandalous sexual history that continues in this genealogy, and we continue to wonder, Matthew, what are you doing? What are you doing? Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Finally, we get to King David. Like, this is where we needed to get to because Jesus is going to come from the bloodline of David. Okay, I'm starting to feel better. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's like, all right, Matthew. If you wanted to paint the worst possible picture of David, you just did that by including this story in your genealogy. Like this is the worst, po like this was the biggest scar to David's reputation. And, and Matthew decides, you know what, I'm going to include it. And I'm not just going to say the word Bathsheba, right? If you don't know your Bible history, this, he's referring to this woman named Bathsheba. One day David's up on top of the roof. He sees this woman bathing, and he gets his people and his posse to go over and grab her and bring her over. We don't know if he forced himself on her or she, you know, just had sex with him out of her own free will. We really don't know. But then, later on, he decides he wants to have 
Bathsheba's husband killed. He was a general in David's army, and so he sends Uriah to the front of the battle so that he'll be killed. And so the worst possible thing that Matthew could have brought up, he just brings up. And he doesn't even mention, he didn't just, doesn't just say Bathsheba, he says whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You see, one of the things that Matthew does in this genealogy is he mentions all the dads. That would have been typical for a genealogy, but he doesn't mention all the moms. But the ones that he does mention, the great-grandmothers of Jesus, all of them had some kind of controversial sexual history. And so you start to think to yourself, what did Matthew have to gain? What in the world did Matthew have to gain by mentioning these women, specifically these women? He could have easily overlooked these not-so-glorious women in the bloodline of Jesus, especially if he was wanting to point to a pure bloodline, which was oftentimes the case of what you were wanting to do if you were pointing to somebody very important, and this is the Messiah. So what in the world did Matthew have to gain by mentioning these four women? I think Matthew was trying to get at this point right here. You see, the family that Jesus came from was going to point to the family that Jesus came from. And Matthew, Matthew knew this better than anyone. Because before Matthew started to follow Jesus, he was a tax collector. Now, I know if you've been a part of church for any amount of time, you've heard this come up, this concept of being a tax collector. Now, horrible tax collectors were. But I want to pause here for a moment. I want to give you some more historical context because I think it will help you to understand just how low Matthew was on the totem pole. In the time of Jesus, the Roman government was in control. And because they were in control, they often would come in and they would overtax specifically the Jewish people. Now, as some of these Jewish areas like Palestine and Judah grew in their population of Jewish people, the, the tax season became a little hostile. And so the Romans got smart and they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell the rights to Jewish men to collect taxes from their very own people. And so they would sell the rights to collect taxes for a given period of time. And so now Jewish men were able to bring, or I'm sorry, they were able to come and actually ask for taxes from their own people. And the corruption just carried over, and they continued to put surcharges on there and keep pocketing the extra change. And because of this, they were disowned by their families. No one liked them. They were absolutely hated. It was literally the worst thing that you could have done as a Jewish person because you were stealing from your very own people. And so when the religious leaders of the day, when they would kind of call out sinners, they wouldn't even put tax collectors in the same category as sinners because they were that bad. They would say, and the sinners and the tax collectors, because they didn't even want to lump them into the, the category of sinners. They were worse than that. This was Matthew. This is where Matthew was. No family, no friends, except maybe some other tax collectors. Lowest of the low, completely has betrayed his own people. And this is where you're going to find Matthew, or more importantly, this is where Jesus finds Matthew. And I think it went something like this. Check it out. This moment would have been very difficult even for Jesus' closest followers because they probably thought this was a joke. It's like, Jesus, you can't possibly be telling us that even the tax collectors can be a part of this. And not just a part of this, like you're going to invite this guy into our inner circle? Can you imagine Peter? You know, Peter always gets thrown under the bus, doesn't he? Like, Jesus, like, this is a joke, right? Like, you, you got some kind of parable you're going to teach us about this, and you're going to ask this guy to leave. It doesn't happen that way. 
Instead, we read in Matthew chapter 9 that just a few moments after a situation like this took place, it says that Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many other tax collectors and disreputable sinners, because that would have been his only friends. A lot of scholars believe in this group of disreputable sinners, it was probably going to include prostitutes. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher, and you can imagine, he's kind of motioning for some of the other disciples to come over to him. The Pharisee is, he's like, come here, come here, come here, come here. Like, why, is your, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Jesus overhears this. And he says, and I can imagine Jesus kind of catching his breath, just in disappointment. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call those who think I have not come. Let me say this again. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but to those who know, for those who know they are sinners. From that point on, Matthew spends about three years with Jesus. And he actually gets to see what Jesus just said unfold. He gets to see Jesus spend time with people that are not righteous, but the sick, the people who would call themselves. They know, they already know that they're sinners. They know they don't deserve to be a part of the story of God. But Matthew, not only being invited into that story, gets to observe Jesus hang out with people that he's not supposed to hang out with. He gets to see Jesus embrace people that you're supposed to avoid and not even touch. He gets to see Jesus invite people into a story that Matthew would have even said, those people aren't supposed to be invited into the kingdom of God. Matthew observes this for the course of three years. And then one day, he finds himself standing beside an empty tomb. And at that moment, I think it all kind of comes and it just flushes and just overwhelms Matthew. And in that moment, he begins to see, because you've got, you got to imagine all of his disciples up to that point of Jesus being resurrected and there being an empty tomb. They had questions. They weren't sure if this was actually going to happen. They had deep hopes, but they weren't sure. But then they see an empty tomb and Matthew standing beside that empty tomb. All of a sudden, it all comes to him. I get to be a part of the story that I was certain that I should have been written out of. You see, Matthew finally realizes he wasn't the exception for Jesus. He was the point. And so Matthew sits down to write his genealogy. Everything that he wants people to know about this man who wrecked his life, but changed it as well. And he says, I'm going to mention Tamar. And Rahab, and I'm going to mention Ruth, and I'm going to mention Bathsheba because they weren't the exception. They're the point. See, Matthew, one of the greatest points that he wanted to get across is Jesus didn't just come from sinners, because again, these are his great grandmothers. His main purpose was to come for sinners, to include them in a story that many people felt like they shouldn't ever be written into. If anything, they needed to be written out of. Some of you maybe have felt that way. Some of you may have friends right now that feel that way. And so let me end by saying this. Do you know what people who are really far from God know? They know they're really far from God. But do you know what people who are really far from God need? They need an invitation. An invitation 
that they can still be a part of a story that they were convinced they should have been written out of. A story like this. God's story. And so that leads me to our principle of one as we close today, which is this. Who's the one person that needs an invitation from you? And it may not just be an invitation to church. Hopefully it would be. My hope is that there's people that God is impressing upon you right now that you know you would love to invite to be a part of a story like this. Not just the story of Trace, but God's bigger story. But let's set the spiritual component aside. Who, Who needs an invitation for you for coffee? Somebody that you know right now is living in isolation. They're living with their fair share of pain and suffering. And their story doesn't read too pretty right now. And maybe the invitation from you is that you're still wanting to be a part of their story. Maybe you need to invite them to a backyard barbecue. Maybe you need to invite them into your story. Maybe just share some of the things that God's doing in your life and how you would hope that he could do that in theirs. Who is the one person that needs an invitation from you right now? People that have probably written their life out of the story of God's. But maybe they can be reminded that that story, like they're not the exception. They're the point, just like you and I were. Let's pray. Father, so many of us have ruled ourselves out at some point in our life. Maybe there's still people in this room and we've, we've written ourselves out of the story because we know better than anybody the junk that we bring with us. We, we know better than anybody the, the list of things, the failures, the secrets, the sin in our life. Like we know that better than anyone. And so oftentimes because we know that nobody else knows that, we begin to write ourselves out of the story, specifically your story, and the fact that you could actually do something amazing through our lives, that you have a purpose for us, that you want to elevate us, not diminish us. Friends, God, that was the point of sending your son, the fact that he would come and not allow us to be a part of it as an exception, but that we were actually the point that he came for people that were really far from you. And so, God, I, I pray that you not only help us to embrace that, but to remember there are people outside of these doors that need an invitation to be a part of that story because they've already written themselves out as well. And so, God, would you impress upon us one particular name where we could begin. We can't do it for everyone, but we can do it for someone. One particular name that where we could extend an invitation and maybe just begin with a conversation that they are still a part of our story. And ultimately, they could be a part of yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.